tuned into the Riel's Events Podcast. We're all about elevating your corporate and nonprofit engagements from boring events to experiences. I'm your host, Riel Jones. Weekly, I interview major donors, sponsors, and fundraisers, as well as political and community leaders who share their philanthropic journeys and insights on how you can elevate your events. In each episode, I delve into useful methods to elevate your events and boost your organizational awareness, donor and client loyalty, and giving. Before this episode ends, make sure that you rate us and leave us a comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Follow us on all social media platforms using our handle at real underscore events. That's at R-I-E-L-L-E underscore E-V-E-N-T-S. This week's episode is called Hiring Consultants. Let's get into it. The reason why I started this podcast was to help provide information that normal nonprofit officers and leaders and corporate managers may not know or might not have access to, even if they're in major foundations that raise a lot of money and they're assumed to have a lot of these skill sets, but there might be things that like within the profession people might notice or better practices, you know, um, that can really help elevate the events that you do, but also the work that you're producing and so that you're more effective and more efficiently run and um, you aren't stressed out. Like, I am not one for all-nighters. I wasn't a one for all-nighters in high school. I wasn't one for all-nighters in college. So I rely heavily on planning, delegation, and making sure that I'm staying on top of where we are with everything and making sure that everybody knows where we're at. Of course, that sometimes can be very hard with um, people have poor communication skills, but that also, I think working with people longer can also help with that and also like showing that this is what you expect and having those conversations when needed can be really important. Um, but also it helps when people realize like once you spent the money and they've gotten the return, the next year to spend the money again because there's always that fear factor the first time that they do it, which is understandable like Anytime you spend money, you you wonder if you're going to have that return or, you know, should you really spend X amount for food or for linen when, you know, it is normal. And yes, you should. Do not skimp on the food or the wine. So without any further ado, let's get into this week's topic of consultants, hiring consultants, working with consultants, and really knowing when you should uh, reach out to one and start seeing who fits for you in your organization. Um, Again, please stay tuned throughout the entire podcast episode so you do get to hear the phenomenal interview with David Ripple. It's just wow. Anyways, so I never knew that there was like a hesitation around hiring consultants within the nonprofit world. Because growing up, I worked a lot with like different businesses and educational institutions and some political like offices. But I want to say until I reached college, I didn't really work work 
with nonprofits. So I felt like people were kind of used to hiring external employees whenever or contractors whenever they needed to grow or create a strategic plan. And I thought in a lot of ways, corporations were more similarly structured than they were till I, you know, started working with a lot of different organizations and realizing that most of the time that's not the case. And um, that's actually a common thread that I've been noticing in different interviews that I've conducted so far. But I think that one thing nonprofits should think more similarly in the lines of corporations is when it comes to hiring consultants and really thinking about using consultants to help you grow versus getting stuck into this cycle of this is how we all, we've always done it. You know, what's the smallest amount that we can spend, um, which is good to be budget mindful and to be comfortable with budgeting, but it's not good when you're trying to skimp off of everything and not invest in what your organization is doing or in even getting the knowledge to grow your organization. Because like, even what it's funny watching Shark Tank, there was a couple people on, I think like season six that talked about how even though they had MBAs, they couldn't take the business past the next step. Or that was like one man with his child. And then another one was like, even though he's raised like a million dollars, he really can't push it to the next stage and he needs help with doing such. And there's something that is very hard in acknowledging that, but it's also something very freeing and being able to say this area, like I reached the point where, okay, I've maxed out what I know I should do. And I need help with seeing what's the next steps that I can take and next options. And so then I can be more informed of what I want to try and move forward and stuff like that. But if you're fearful of hiring people or letting people be a part of your passion baby, you know, this nonprofit that you started or that you've t- you're running or taken um, leadership of or whatever it is or being a part of um, growing it and helping it thrive in your community and society, you need to also invest in yourself and also the team. And that means developing deeper skills, more strategic thinking, and knowing what the next level would be because there's always a next level. There's always a next level. Let me say that one more time. There's always a next level. So I don't want anybody to feel like, okay, well, we do this amazing event. People know us for this event. They come each year. You know, we're good. There's always a next level. Because, yes, they're coming because perhaps amongst the regular events or the events of that season, yours really is one of the ones you should go to. However, it can be a, oh, well, we know what to expect kind of thing. And, okay, as long as you come here at this time, you start drinking early, then by the time this person gets on, then you're good, blah, blah, blah. You don't want it to be predictable and that people are really just, yes, they're socializing, which is good, and they're networking and collaborating, which is always great because you want to be a place that, fosters partnerships and does not seem threatened by people 
unless somebody is the exact same thing that you're doing, then like that you have to draw your lines. And then also, why are they there? You know. But anyways, um, you need to not only invest in having a consultant or figuring out who can help you with taking your nonprofit to the next level and seeing what it is and giving you options of what it might be. Like if you went and you're renovating your house, no matter if it's your first house or your third house or your third renovation, you need a designer to kind of paint out. Here's three different options of what you can do in your budget based off what you kind of told me. And we can kind of take one and run with it or tweak it a little bit or whatever it is. Which one do you like? They show you a vision of what can be that you didn't see there before. And then you trust them for however many months to make it happen. That's how your consultants are in your nonprofits. But on the other hand, they also think a lot about the business side of it. So what's the return? And what are things that we can um, save and cut or partner with people or and look at your network of who you know because a lot of times you're underutilizing the network and community that you've already have and have established and it's completely understandable because your development officers your managers are having hosting so many different not only events but hats in the roles you know of not only nurturing new donors and finding them or clients and finding them and nurturing those relationships or those leads. And then once they get them following up and keeping them happy and in-person meetings with it, they also have to create new initiatives, pitch them to you and the team, get people on board, plan it, deal with the board is, and then also plan major events and try to be really crafty and unique as well as perhaps if they're in a nonprofit, perhaps not being paid as much as they would in a corporation and having a lot more hats in addition to huge portfolios and expectations. So it's understandable that sometimes you might miss opportunities to partner with people or to save money because you're doing so many things that honestly you need help. And your team needs to see and hear that you need help and that you can't do it all on your own and that even though you are willing and passionate about this thing that your nonprofit is ultimately about your mission and your vision you're also a person and you also need your uh your own life and whatnot and you can't have your full day of work did a lot of different events at nighttime, and then you come home and you're still doing work, or you're taking it over the weekend and you're still doing a lot of work. Like, it has to be some sort of balance. And honestly, when you do a cost analysis and a lot of the, like, consultants you'll hire, like, they might come with a team or they might come with themselves and a plan and strategic points, and, you know, they're they're checking with you versus you having to chase down an associate to see if, they're making any progress. They're really invested in making it happen. And they're less than what you would pay a new manager annually. So like, if you see like, okay, wow, I'm getting all these benefits. And even if it doesn't work at the end of the year, which prayerfully it does. And if it doesn't, you've learned a lot 
they've shown you a lot more different lenses and perspectives of looking at whatever the area you're bringing them into to help your nonprofit or your corporation grow. But then you can also say, this is what I would like to see in the future when I hire the next person, because this is what I've identified as my weak point and how I need help. But going back to what I was saying before, it takes a lot to get to the point of saying like, hey, you know, I do need, we do need to hire someone. It is a lot right now. Can we look into a consultant? Because as people, and if you're an American, as an American or Westerner, you know, you have this pride of I've accomplished X, Y, Z, I'm proficient in X, Y, Z, and I have no flaws. Like, I know my flaws and my team, I'm very honest with them about this, my my personal drawbacks, and I hire around that so that whatever it is, it's never interfering with the work, the finished product that we're producing and that we want. But that being said, you have to come to a point of self-awareness of saying, like, this is where I am lacking and I need help. And can it can even be if you're like a project or program manager for a corporation of like having someone come in to teach you how to be a little nicer in your delivery and what you say. Or having someone in come in like me who creates engagement strategies so that you have really powerful, enchanting, engaging, and well-executed events that yield higher returns without you having to stress out. And then when it comes to the different events, we give you live options of these are things that we can do with the strategy that we have, you know? And so that saves your team a lot of stress. Your board is happy. They feel like they're heard. More importantly, your message is much clearer. It's conveyed. People are way more engaged. They are just blown away by what you're able to have done, the level of execution, how professional it is. And they want to tell all their friends. And really, they want to give and support this and have their name really be a part of what you're doing so that in the future, as it continues to grow and be bigger, they are a part of that. But you have to strive for excellency, and part of that is is knowing when to hire consultants and letting go of the idea that this is so much your baby that no one else can get it, and it is so unique that there's no other organization like it, and no one else can help. That's BS. Lose that thought. Let it go. Yes, you're creative. You could have 500 different artists come in here and paint a nude woman, and all of them be different, beautiful pieces of artwork. But at the end of the day, they all will have some similarities of the silhouette of the curves or the colors or the boldness or whatever it is. Like, it's, they're all going to be a picture of the nude model, even in, in its abstractness. Your organization is still going to be in a category of, you know, helping kids, feeding the hungry, helping the environment, helping people who are abused by unfortunate circumstances, providing relief, providing money for people, teaching people how to grow businesses, or bringing people together. So you can make it as creative within that or not, but you have to understand that, like, again, there's going to be certain basic stuff that you need 
to fulfill what people expect of an organization in this box that you are in, what however big that box is, of how people associate your nonprofit and your brand. But on the other hand, you also have to, again, know, okay, I want to take it to the next level and I can do everything. And even if I could, I want to see what else can be done. And based off the returns I will get, if not this year, but continue to implement it into the next year, because there are some events that you have to realize that unless you have huge marketing or outreach or word of mouth beforehand, having the first one could be very tough of getting a lot of people there and a part of it. Thank you for joining this week's Real Events podcast on hiring consultants. I am so excited to have David Ripple as our interview guest. He has had an amazing 20 plus career year career in fundraising in the Midwest. He started his career at Angela Hospice as a development and PR officer. And he was promoted to director of development and PR. He was there for four years until he went to the American Red Cross as a senior development officer for two years. Then he went to St. Joseph Mercy Health Systems as director of major gifts. He also served a two-year term there. After, he was executive director for CSS, which is a fundraising consulting and management firm. Next, David worked with Wayne State University as Associate Vice President of Development for a year and 10 months until he was promoted to the Vice President of Development and Alumni Affairs and the President of Wayne State Foundation, where he's received a lot of incredible recognition because of his phenomenal work um, in these roles. In 2008, Crane's Detroit listed him as a 40 under 40 for helping his Wayne State University Alumni Affairs Department not only reach but surpass their $500 million goal. In this podcast episode, he talks about raising $405 million in one year with Wayne State University. Following his six-year term with Wayne State, he worked with Ohio State University as the Vice President of Development. There, he raised, him and his team reached a $3 billion fundraising goal, which is almost like hard, it's almost impossible to wrap your mind around. How do you as an individual lead your team to raise $3 billion, but also his team was of approximately 200 um, fundraisers. So I I asked him about that experience as well. But currently, he's the president of the Remington Group, which was established in 1995 by Peter Remington, who was really interested in helping different philanthropic causes and nonprofits really create the strategic partnerships that they need and fundraising strategies that are appropriate for their foundation or their initiative. Clients that David Ripple has had includes Bowling Green State University, the Coalition of Temporary Shelters, Michigan Opera Theater, and Leader Dogs for the Blind. 
I am so excited for all the phenomenal insight and tips that he shares with us this week, as well as what's kind of prompted his journey in fundraising, how he stumbled into this career, and how he's led these teams of phenomenal, passionate fundraisers really excel and break the goals that their institution set forth. I look forward to you all hitting us up on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Google+, um, and everywhere else that you can find us, including um, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, about your comments, feedback, questions with this week's interview. Without any further ado, let's jump into it. My, my undergrad was, I had a double major, journalism and public relations, mm-hmm. and so I had an internship, uh, four months, un, non-paid, 20 hours a week, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at, a, at a, a local hospice, and, but the, the internship was set up as public relations, I, it didn't even have fundraising in the job description, right. but this is now 1993, mm-hmm. 94, yeah, back then. Um, and, uh, I found all I was doing was planning their golf outing Mm -hmm. and their black tie event and sending annual appeals. I did some press releases, but it was mainly fundraising. Right. I didn't know that was even a profession, truthfully. Right, right. So after I was at the hospice for five years, I was recruited by the Red Cross in Detroit for a strict, strictly 40 hour a week fundraising position. So I'll give that a try. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here I am. Yeah. And so how was your, like, the internship? Like, what was the experience when you, once you realized, okay, now this really is, like, I'm into the event planning and the fundraising side of it. Maybe not it. the... Okay, you did. I you did. It, yeah. I mean, it's public relations, you know, broadly, and fundraising are very similar. It's how do you how do you develop a compelling argument to to support the business or organization that you're serving mm-hmm. and fundraising the end result for fundraising is hopefully you're raising money and result of public relations obviously you're increasing visibility and brand recognition and all of those things but they really go hand in hand right right it's interesting looking at your um kind of career trajectory you're you have what people think of like as the millennial type of you, you're with a place for like a year or two or three years. You really help them grow, create a strategy and implement it. And um, then you move on to like the next challenge or the next thing, which is really exciting. But what I also notice is that you're good at keeping those relationships So and really right. building on that. And um, 
even I'm trying to go back. Every pretty... job I've had, except for well, except for mm-hmm. the the hospice, I was recruited to. Mm-hmm. I didn't mm-hmm. seek. And like I know when you were with CCS, like mm-hmm. um, you brought in working with like the Michigan Opera Theater, mm-hmm. and didn't you work with them? I'm with Bef- them now. Yeah, yeah. and beforehand, be, be before. Well, in 2002 through 2004, I was their consultant. Yeah. On behalf of CCS. Yeah, and um, and it seems like you, like even as you went to the the next stage, you continue to like um, build that partnership, or even like with the Saint Joseph, um, like health system mm-hmm. or whatnot. Again, you were keeping those relationships and taking it to the next place you you went and seeing how those resources can kind of work together, mm-hmm. which is very unique. And I think a lot of times, um, especially like baby boomers, they think of like you should be in one place for 20 or 30 years. <laughs> right. And if right. you are moving around, then that must be a sign of like you're whatever. Can't job, you right? can't yeah. keep a job yeah. or you're not building good relationships. And I just like even reading all the articles about you over time, it was everything highlighted how much, like, yes, your professionalism and how much you care about what you do, but also your relationship building, you know, and it was never any, it was always all, everything very positive and stuff like that, and I think that's pretty remarkable. Never burn a bridge. Right, right. Never burn a bridge. Right. <laughs> and it's something, as again, it's important when it comes to fundraising oh, because absolutely. you're always looking to pull people together um, as strategic partners and, like, you know what, I did work with someone X number of years ago who's doing that same thing, and mm-hmm. maybe y'all should get together and, you know, become partners in this initiative. For sure, yeah. So, I like that. Um, so how was it working at um, Ohio State? I saw that you oversaw the central um, fundraising staff, mm-hmm. and during your time there, y'all were over a $2 billion campaign. It was over, it actually finished over three. Wow. Yeah. How is that? So how, like, first, how do you wrap your mind around this is not only our goal, but we're doing it. And then um, I know you always have the plans of, like, this is how we're going to spend the money, stuff like that. So you know you need it or you know, like, this is where it's going. But, like, how does it feel being in there? And then even, like, with that role, I you went from, like, having 40 staff to having, like, 100 people underneath you and stuff like that. That's a huge growth and a change, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, Ohio State, the whole Ohio State experience was one that um, I I have a lot of family from Ohio. So Mm -hmm. even growing up, I was always rooting for the Buckeyes. (laughs) And uh, in January of 2014, I got a call from a recruiting firm in Columbus wondering if I'd be interested in, in assuming the role of vice president of development for the Buckeyes. And after serving Wayne State for eight years in a very similar capacity, mm-hmm. um, you know, a place like Ohio State is near the kind of the top of the food chain in our profession. Mm-hmm. So from going from Wayne State from, you know, a team of 130 or 40, whatever that was, mm-hmm. to leading a team of 260 or so at Ohio State, mm-hmm. it was the opportunity to serve at the highest level like that. But also, um, how do you... Um, steward or care for the brand that is the Ohio State University and how do you organize and and assemble and motivate Mm -hmm. mentor and teach a group of people um, to be even better than they are today Mm -hmm. and that's it was a wonderful experience it was a great opportunity and and we raised a lot of money during my time there that's 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 amazing um I'm sorry was it 
Wayne State? Um, no, yes, Wayne State, when you're a VP of Development of Alumni Affairs, yes. you went from having a staff of 42 yes, to I having was, 100 I started people. at Wayne as, as the deputy, so as the associate vice president. So mm-hmm. only the frontline fundraising team was reported to me for the first two years I was at Wayne. And then because of uh, a transition of the VP at the time, I was promoted to the vice president, so I inherited the entire operation at Wayne fundraising, or development, and alumni relations, as well as president of the foundation of Wayne State. So I was in that capacity for about six years. And, like, for most people, like, in most foundations, this is a, a large, like, a really mm-hmm. huge team. And, like, I've worked with a lot of different, even national um, foundations that were, like, in Atlanta or D.C. or even Boston, and they didn't have teams nearly of this size and capacity. And you found it you found a lot of, or I found a lot of, like, holes in how, like, they tried to manage, like, the development officers mm-hmm. with even having smaller teams. And, like, how do you do that with having such larger ones? And, like, yes, you have, this is who we are, this is our values, and you're trying to implement that. And I'll get to the events, but this is just kind of, like, <laughs> when I'm reading this, it kind of blows my mind, like, yeah. you know, yeah. Well, you know, Something um, I've I've learned a lot from my dad. Mm-hmm. My dad was a auto exec for almost forty years and retired several years ago. But he would always I call them rippleisms. He would give me little nuggets of advice, and and the one that probably stands out most for anyone in a leadership position, and it it might sound trivial, but it's so true. You're only as good as the people around you, mm-hmm. and a good leader surrounds himself. Uh, with people even smarter than them. Right, right. And my my view on leadership is, you know, there's ver- there's various styles and ways that people lead. And I think in our society, there's a lot more uh, people in leadership positions that have big titles but don't lead. Mm. Um, they have a, they're a director or they're a manager, um, but there's far fewer leaders in this world mm-hmm, than mm-hmm. there are people who have management. So my, my own way of leading was you, you hire really good and smart people or you retain those that you already have, you give them the tools to be successful, and you get out of their way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when they need help, you help them. When they need coaching, you coach. When they need discipline, you have to provide that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's absolutely... Fundraising in particular, whether you're talking about events or whether you're talking about actual frontline major gift work, it's a team sport. Right. Uh, there's no I in this business, believe me. This is all about how do we how do we assemble the right people at the right time to solicit the right gift. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that and in Ohio State, it, Ohio State's in a fortunate position because it is so large that they had uh, tremendous amounts of resources to put together the best team you could. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to say it's easy. Fundraising is far from easy. Right. But the opportunity to present the university in a light that would yield philanthropy is fairly significant because, if, number one, it has significant brand recognition. Yes, yes. Um, and that's important. It's not everything, but it's important. But a lot of times, especially like startup charities or, or small nonprofits, they're in such a competitive space mm-hmm. to solicit and secure gifts that the brand sometimes is, if it's not well-known, it's much harder to do so. So right. in a place like Ohio State, 
in many ways, I actually think my role at Wayne State was more challenging than the one at Ohio State, even though my team was about half the size. How so? Because Wayne State is in the shadows of Ann Arbor and East Lansing, mm. and there's two very prominent schools in those places that, um, you know, attract people on the fall in the fall on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Wayne State, the little engine that could, in many ways, when you think about their football team, it's a division. It's the largest Division two school in the country. You know, a home football game might yield you know three to five thousand people mm-hmm. on the same day at the same time. There's a hundred thousand people in Ann Arbor. Okay. So that brand recognition, why I say the Wayne versus Ohio State just didn't have the resources of an Ohio State Mm -hmm. or the brand recognition for that matter um, to really raise those significant amounts of philanthropy. But at the end of the day, um, in the time I was at Wayne and even subsequently since I've left, they've made significant investments in getting really good people there Mm -hmm. who are able to articulate and tell the mission and compel people to invest in the university. And they're doing wonderful things now. Mm -hmm. And I definitely see that. That's one thing that I mentioned with Ned before I came to Detroit, because I'm from Atlanta. Um, When I saw yellow and green, I might think of like the Green Bay Packers, but now I think immediately of Wayne State Mm -hmm. University. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't a university that I even was on my radar before coming here. And it's one that like I have a lot of, since being here, I have a lot of deep like respect for. And it's a lot because of the events I've gone to, whether it's public things or students talking about the artwork that they have at the Detroit Art um, Market Dam. The Detroit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, or just like talking to different f- professors who are just really passionate about their students and getting their mission out and like why um, Wayne State matters and who attends Wayne State and like I think like you're saying that it is really um, effective and but also like you can see that there's a strategy behind it like mm-hmm. they really are spending time to nurture these different areas even if it's not just the sports sure because that's not how i've been connecting with wayne that's state right. Absolutely. and maybe like with ohio of course you know it can't you can't use that sports which mm-hmm. is a huge engine mm-hmm. that is for another day right <laughs> <laughs> um but now you do work with a lot of different nonprofits um with the remington group and um doing consulting can you talk a little bit about that sure yeah sure so Having now served uh, um, in this business for 23 years, I've been fortunate that each each role back from Angela Hospice all the way through Ohio State, um, I, I was able to um, be empowered to learn mm-hmm. and to uh, work with some really talented people, people who I consider mentors to this day. Um, but I was always eager to learn what was next. Mm-hmm. So throughout my time, and, and from the smallest nonprofit to, to the, the larger place in Columbus, um, I was able to hopefully gain enough knowledge and experience that making the decision to move into the consulting world, um, that I felt that I could add value to uh, nonprofit organizations who were trying to secure philanthropy. Mm-hmm. So... You know, when I started with the Remington Group a year ago, January, um, number one, you mentioned when we first sat down about maintaining relationships. Mm-hmm. It's those relationships that I built in this Detroit market for so many years, which is why I decided to come back when I left Ohio State. Um, 
that reached out to many of those that I had been connected to over the years to number one just let them know I was back in town but two that that I was now moving into a consulting role Mm -hmm. and based on all of my experiences it's not perhaps just one niche area that I can be helpful right like a major gifts or a special event or annual fund or something like that hopefully I have a well-rounded enough background that I can be helpful to serve a wide variety of nonprofits and so far, that's bearing fruit, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I've served seven different clients from, you know, the largest family-only homeless shelter in the city of Detroit. You know, it's called the Coalition on Temporary Shelter, mm-hmm. COTS, um, to Bowling Green State University in, in uh, Bowling Green, Ohio, to help them with assessing their operation, to now providing campaign counsel to Concordia University in Ann Arbor, mm-hmm. working again with the Michigan Opera Theater, helping them direct their capital campaign um but each each client has their own unique needs Mm -hmm. and uh, i've been fortunate that i've been afforded the opportunity to help them Mm -hmm. yes um that's one thing like i love with consulting with different nonprofits. i love going into the organization and seeing their structure but also seeing their unique needs and like Mm -hmm. this is what they excel at this is like their team and what their team is really passionate about and like even the secret nuggets that they might not know, like, wow, this person really is working here because oh, sure. they have this pool and whatnot. But a lot of times, um, nonprofits, unlike corporations, um, sometimes are more hesitant to hire external um, consultants or people to like kind of help them with the strategy or look at their books or even say, okay, you're doing great this way, but maybe we could pivot that way. How do you get them outside of just being awesome and people knowing you for sure. accomplishing a lot of amazing things? But how do you get them to let go of that fear? Because even once you're hired, I'm sure human nature still kicks in at some point. Like, mm-hmm. this is my baby. This is how we've always done it. Right. <laughs> well, I think there's a few things that are paramount to the beginning of any consultative relationship. Number one, it's um, finding a common level of trust mm-hmm. that I can step into an organization, um, quickly assess where they are at that point, and really think of it. And, and this again, it may sound trivial, but think of this as a true partnership. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, I'm I'm the paid consultant um, that comes you know comes in and out of the office. I'm not a regular full time employee. But based on the experiences that I've had over over a couple of decades, um, I can work with them to articulate perhaps opportunities that they may not be realizing, mm-hmm. challenges that they may be creating for themselves, yes. uh, regardless of um, uh, if they are aware of them or not. And then hopefully based on my own experiences and, and, and the experiences of this firm, um, advise them on ways that they could improve their opportunity to be successful raising more money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, one thing that I've also noticed, especially not so much with the larger nonprofits, but with the more mid-sized and smaller ones, um, I'm someone, when I come into a new project, I create a timeline of this is our what we're looking at, this is the different roles, this department sure. should be looking at, the, oh, sorry. No, you're fine. Uh, this department should be mm-hmm. looking at this, this, and this. But also I like to do milestone check-ins. Mm-hmm. So, like, in the beginning we know, okay, quarterly we'll be meeting, but then every so often we're meeting. But what I notice is, like, a lot of times the smaller nonprofits, either they're not used to that kind of system 
Or they might be like in a business world, you see like solo entrepreneurs, you might have like nonprofits that are really, really run by one person and they get can get very panicked if like, okay, it, like communication. So like, how do you help them balance like communication expectations? Like we are working, we did just check in, everything is all right. We're on schedule, on a plan and not like, oh, well, I emailed you. 20 minutes ago and I haven't heard back. Like, how do you help um, people kind of get through communication um, barriers or stuff like that? It's a great, it's a great question, Yael. And I think, uh, especially in the smaller nonprofits, because when you think about, in many ways, the difference between not the nonprofit world and the for-profit world. For-profit world, many people enter it with the, the goal of selling their product mm-hmm. or in increasing exposure to a particular, um, uh, whether it's a widget or, yeah. or something else. Those that began and created nonprofit organizations are typically very mission-driven. Yes. And they don't necessarily have robust business experience. Mm-hmm. And the reality, the stark reality for, for many startup nonprofits is while I have this great idea to make the world a better place in whatever aspect that they're trying to serve, um, perhaps they don't have that strong business sense or business background to help them lead in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's in many ways how consultants like you and I can be helpful because we come in with a more of a business sense. Not that I, I, this isn't meant to be a, a no, criticism. No, 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 not at all. But, but the, the notion that there's, um, there is... Uh, this is a business, right? And we need yes. to run it as such. Um, and you know, from from a homeless shelter to, you know, an environmental agency or something like that, their focus is on their mission mm-hmm. and their vision, mm-hmm. making the world a better place. And however they do that, it's our opportunity to again use that word partner with them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to push. Mm-hmm. They hired us to push them, yes. and that's okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I also need to hear this right now. They yeah. hired, right? <laughs> yes. And um, whether or not they stick to the deadlines that, that we mutually agree upon or we mm-hmm. ask them to, um, it is, it's falling back on that notion of, of, of true partnership, mm-hmm. that we're going to be there for them mm-hmm. um, and, and serve their needs and meet the needs that we establish on the front end of this agreement. Mm-hmm. And then I have one more question about this before I pivot. Um, I know that one thing that you probably work on a lot and that I I try to work on is collaboration within the organization Mm -hmm. and also taking a lot of the stress load off of the development officer Mm -hmm. because while they are you all, because you were a development officer at one point, Mm -hmm. um, are unicorns and you can do everything and you have the magic and the, you know, ambition and all that kind of stuff, it does become kind of overwhelming and how many has people placed onto you and the expectations of like not only like great time management, but also like basically using your time at home to continue mm-hmm. doing stuff. Oh, yeah. um, and also I think that a lot of times what I notice is at least with the events part, the different departments aren't communicating enough. So like even if you have like a really big foundation, mm-hmm. their marketing team might not be being utilized enough for this event. So yes, we're spending 30, 40 or a hundred thousand dollars on this event but we really aren't using our great team that could quickly produce X, Y, and Z and, you know, mm-hmm. reach out to the avenues that we're already using to promote this is what we've done, this sure. is what we talked about, this is why you should come back next year, not just buy a ticket, you mm-hmm. know. 
Um, how is that, and like, how do you help the nonprofits look at working together within within, within itself? their own teams. Yeah, yeah and not be so siloed. Oh, well, that if you had a, a magic answer for that, I'm sure you'd have lots of nonprofits. <laughs> right. Because um, I think probably in many nonprofit settings, the number one thing on any job description is other duties as assigned. Everyone gets pulled in a hundred different directions. Typically, right. um, you know, I think the opportunity that exists is is for that when, when we're brought into an organization to help them understand how collaboration um, will increase their their opportunity for success. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, when you're stepping in and you see these things happening, it's it you're you're there on purpose. They brought you in to say right. we need outside counsel to help us drive this activity. And then you step in with the, the person who signed your contract and say, listen, Based on my experience, mm-hmm. this works even better when we have marketing and public relations and the development office working much more collaboratively than right. than at least what I appear to see in this siloed operation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's communication is the key. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have just a few more questions yeah. before I let you go, and they're more so about like who you are as a person, mm-hmm. and like I think a lot of times who we are, like you said before, the mission and how we get into philanthropy in some ways, even though. You said kind of like you were thinking about PR mm-hmm. in, in nonprofits. But first, um, when did you start volunteering, and what was your first role? My first volunteer role, um, probably I did a lot um, growing up in the church, mm-hmm. as many kids probably do. Um, I, was, um, I was an usher with my dad. Mm. on Sunday mornings and I uh, you know suit and tie back then this yes 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 even this is late 70s early 80s mm-hmm. um we had our usher team mm-hmm. you know and, the, and we would do that and then I actually started helping my dad um like one month a year we every after all the Sunday services would help collect and count the offering mm. and I found real value in yes. that and learning um, about how the church operated as a business and mm-hmm. kept its doors open to serve people um, on Sundays and, and throughout the week. Um, so, I, I mean, those are some of my very first experiences as being a volunteer. And mm-hmm. it was really, um, I think, you know, some of my parents helped instill some of those values in me that that was really important. Right. And I love the fact that you highlight service because that's really what drives us when... Um, we're in the nonprofit world and also our volunteers, mm-hmm. you know, and that desire to, like, be of help to someone else. And a lot of times it's, it starts when we're young and we don't really connect the two of, like, I'm getting this joy that I felt when I was, like, seven doing this, you know, yeah, or, sure. or whatnot. Um, would you consider yourself more so a board member, someone who, um, like you said before, is, like, a fundraiser or someone who is kind of... Um, a mover, like um, ambassador for nonprofits. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. I I have been all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the word that comes most to my mind right now is a facilitator. Mm. And I use that word intentionally because I think of the fundraising world in many ways as facilitation. If they got rid of development or advancement and 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 replaced it with facilitation. I think it makes sense. And why do I say that? The, the, the ultimate goal of, of the development world, of fundraising world, is to take, to, to identify mm-hmm. people, 
that have hopes and dreams, mm -hmm. but also have means, they have resources, mm -hmm. together with those organizations and people that can make those dreams come true. Yes. It sounds very trivial. No, but, but it's, it's very yes. sincere. Yes. And the fundraiser is the person in the middle of that story to make, make that marriage happen. Mm -hmm. And that fundraiser, whether it is doing it through an event mm -hmm. that someone attends and it may be their first time within the doors of the organization that is hosting this event, what is the presentation of that event? Yeah. What does the, what, what is the, um, the program mm -hmm. and how do we how do how do people feel when they leave that event I think mm -hmm. we meant when we talked on the phone it's something that I think about all the time I, someone a mentor a long time ago said people don't remember speeches and they don't remember the specifics within events but they they will remember how it made them feel if yes. it has an impact yes and this is a long answer to your question no, no. but the, but the notion is that person in the middle whether it's the fundraiser or the event planner mm -hmm. or, or the volunteer in many ways, mm -hmm. if they're able to make that connection with those who have hopes, dreams, and means together with those that can make those things come true, that's where the magic happens. And mm -hmm. that's, what I, that's why I intentionally use the word facilitation. Yes, I like that. I like that. And um, <clears throat> before I let you go, what's a major like event faux pas that you notice a lot when you are asked to come to like galas or conferences and you're like, <sighs> and because one thing, like, let me just preface this Please, as yeah. nonprofits yeah. and volunteer teams. A lot of times we feel like people will forgive us for the little mistakes because they know like we worked really hard this year. And again, it's a business. So I'm going to hold you to the same corporate standards because it's not a social birthday party or like mm -hmm. baby shower. This is a, organization this is your brand and stuff so yeah. what's like a faux pas that you notice that people hope you forgive number one and it stands out for me because i've seen it at so many nonprofit events even corporate events for that matter mm -hmm. um is the program goes too long mm. the speeches are too long yes um you know i think of i've attended several uh golf outings mm -hmm. in my day mm -hmm. And you arrive, and you're in a good mood, and you're going to have a little, whether it's a morning or an afternoon, have a little something to eat, and and you um, get in your cart, and you're with friends, or you're with colleagues, and you go out, and you play a round of golf, which is not a short right. exercise. It can be, you know, three and a half to six hours. Wow. And then you come off the course, and you're going to grab us something to eat, and then there'll be nonprofits that'll do an hour and a half long program. Or an hour long program after you've just been on the golf. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a faux pas as you as you yes. use the word in, entirely. Or the black tie event that it's a strolling supper and you're on your feet for three hours. Yes. <laughs> and then you're expected to sit for a program that's an hour long. Um, brevity is good. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> you can still tell the mission of the organization in a short program yes. or what you're trying to accomplish, but I think. Part of the critical success for event planners mm -hmm. like yourself is how do I help tell the story of the mission and the mission of the organization through the actual event itself? Yes, rather yes, than yes. just through the program. Yes, and that's something that I try to highlight, and I try to tell people even when I go to like their events and I'm like I'm not trying to get hired. It's just I know that you spend X amount on this event. Mm -hmm. 
But as someone who does not know your corporation, I attended and I had no idea what you sold, mm-hmm. how long you've been in business, why your product, or even why I should go on the website right. outside of like, this is good food and drinks, you yes, know, which right. most people kind of care about. It's like the, the main thing. Um, but like, yes, you have to think, like, try to look at elevating the experience for people um, and t- tying in the mission and message. But I think going back to like, the strategy, if you plan well, or even like writing a good essay, mm-hmm. when you're starting out and you're a writer, like you just want to get it done. You're yes. like five pages, boom, boom, boom. But then as you write more, you're like, let me edit this. Let me try to see how much I can say in that one sentence and condense it. Mm-hmm. And then you get more impact with every sentence you have. And because you're planning these events for at least six months to a year, a lot of times, whomever is speaking or who's ever helping you write those speeches should have enough time to prepare a three-minute condensed speech sure. instead of letting you go up there and wing it for 30 minutes, hoping you've mm-hmm. hit on everything important, you know, in this time and stuff like that. Um, before I let you go, what is, like, ways that our um, listeners can connect with you, either, like, online, social media, to just tell you, like, this is awesome, <laughs> you impacted <laughs> me, or I have a question and, sure. you know, I would like sure. to reach out. Well, uh, the Remington Group, we, we obviously, we have a website. Um, it's remingtongroup1.com, and that's the number one, so remingtongroup1.com. Um, and happy to have additional conversations with any of those that would be interested in hearing a little bit more. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Real's Events Podcast, presented by Real Events, LLC. We thank you in advance for rating and commenting on this episode on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Providing feedback lets us know what we're doing right, what you'd like us to talk about more, and it provides more visibility to our programming so others can enjoy our show and elevate their events. For more event planning tips, inspiration, and assistance, please visit our website, realevents.com. We want to give a special shout-out And thank you to everyone who made this episode and podcast possible. Episode 1, Hiring Consultants, Special Guest, David Ripple of the Remington Group, Beverly Hills, Michigan. Our podcast host and researcher, Riel Jones of Riel Events, LLC, in Atlanta, Georgia, and Southeast Michigan. Our podcast, Music by Swaz. Z-A-W-S-E of Dream State Studios. Our podcast producer, Mizzle, at Dream State Studios, LLC, in Atlanta, Georgia. Again, thank you, and thank you, everybody, for listening and providing us feedback.